Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right. Hey, good morning, everyone. Good morning. I want to say a special good morning to our Mercy Northeast family over there, y'all. Last weekend, we had an absolute incredible launch of our Mercy Northeast campus, or I should say relaunch from Easter, but in our new facility. It was amazing, and I think maybe uh, the thing that really stands out to me that I want to celebrate and thank God for was both at Mercy Northeast and here at Providence Road, several people responded to the gospel, to the invitation to trust Christ, and I just want to take a moment and thank the Lord for his saving work that he's doing among us. Man. Listen, I, I want to say if that was you, uh, if there at Northeast, if that was you, please tell somebody. Listen, the enemy would want you to keep that to yourself, all right? But you have been redeemed into a family of redeemed sinners. And there are people who can walk with you. So you can talk with Pastor Richard or Joseph Anderson, any of our staff up there. Or if a friend brought you, tell them. And the same goes true here at Providence Road. Come up, talk to me, Pastor Jake, any of our folks here. Or if a friend brought you, talk with them. Let them know and we can walk with you and take next steps. Kind of to that end, I do want to let you know our Christmas Eve service times are up on our website now. Uh, This is a wonderful kind of unique worship service that we do. Uh, It's a little shorter. We keep it right about an hour. We keep it kid-friendly. And the reason that we have multiple services at both of our campuses is so that you can invite. All right, listen, I'm going to talk about this a little later in the sermon, but I believe and still believe that inviting folks to a Christmas service is like low-hanging fruit here in the Bible Belt, okay? A chance for them to hear the gospel. You have no idea how much one worship gathering can change someone's life. And I know the Lord doesn't just work in a worship gathering. In fact, scripture would tell me that most of the work he does in people's lives is when the saints are engaging people in the community. But man, he does move in worship gatherings. We saw it last weekend. In fact, uh, just the other day, I was talking to one of our members who was speaking at an FCA gathering, a retreat last weekend, right? He's speaking at this retreat and this kid comes up to him, kid, this college student comes up to him um, after the thing was done, after he was done preaching. He said, hey, I just wanted you to know, uh, I gave my life to the Lord today. Uh, And I wanted you to know that I actually um, was planning on taking my own life this weekend. This is this past weekend. I was planning on taking my own life. In fact, I wrote a note and left it. But then a friend invited me to this thing. And I thought, I don't know, maybe God will have something for me here. And so I left the note at home and I came here. Um, And then the Lord saved this guy. And and this guy told told the whole camp. And and Ryan told me and everything. And just this, there's this reminder, y'all, that... When we say we expect God to change a life today, I, I just, my God keeps moving, all right? He is not done, okay? He is still moving, and man, he can move in your life. And I, just, I believe in moving your life and your friend's life and your family's life, so all that to say, man, I just, um, we don't know what people are going through, but I do know a gospel and I know a God who cares for them, and Christmas Eve is one of those just natural invitation times. In fact, you'll see on your seat, you got something we fondly call Christmas squares, Okay, Um, 
Yeah, Christmas square. It's in the shape of a square. Tells you about Christmas at Mercy, all right? Um, these are like, we got a bunch more of these, okay? You got one uh, for your one who's far from God but close to you. But you take a bunch more, okay? They'll be in the lobby on the way out. You take them and you give them out to anybody and everybody, including your friends and family or whoever, waiter, waitresses, everybody, all right? Let's see what the Lord might do that weekend. All right, Matthew chapter 2. That's where we're going to be. Really simple message today, guys but also probably the most confrontational of all the Christmas messages. That's because this is the passage in the Christmas story about who's in charge. We're going to see our author Matthew tell the story, one you may have heard if you've been around church um, around Christmas time. It's the account of the wise men from the East. Every nativity set usually has these guys, they're the guys dressed all bougie, rolling up with a camel and everything. That's the wise men. And Matthew is going to use their story to make one clear point. And that's that Jesus is in charge. He has the authority, and not just as a king, but as our king. And the reason it's confrontational is because it claims that Christmas is not just the announcement of this, like, savior-deliverer. That part of Christmas I actually think is easier for us than the 21st century West to accept. Like if you do something nice for me, I can be grateful for you, right? Great, but I'm still in charge of me, right? But listen, maybe the most common hole in our Christianity is a Jesus who we celebrate as Savior, but functionally we ignore him as king. By that it means we like, we nod our head at the claim and everything, but we live our lives as if it's a fairy tale, so we've got to talk about it. Like, especially here in America, we don't do kings. We are a country founded in rebellion to a king. That's our identity. I mean, you think about the only royal family we we ever even interact with in any way. Um, They're just there for us to be entertained by, the British royal family, right? I mean, can you imagine if Prince William, if he ever actually does become king, right? I think the queen might live to be 260, but if she ever passes on and he becomes king, in his first public address, he gets up there and he says that he plans, just this big announcement, that he plans to rule over his royal subjects graciously, and he expects their absolute undying allegiance to his every move. If he talked like that, like a king, you know, can you imagine, I mean, even us over here on this side of the pond would be enraged at how dare he talk like that. Right, everybody would go up in arms at this guy trying to exert authority. You know, Oprah would go over and talk about how his childhood trauma brought this whole thing to be about. I mean, it'd be a whole thing. Because we are programmed for and have been for generations to be skeptical and guarded against authority. And on top of that, y'all, sometimes we're right. Right? Those in authority sometimes do abuse their power, further reinforcing our cultural attitude that nobody is gonna tell me what to do. They're not gonna tell me what to do. Right? Social media has these hashtags all over the place. Right? Silence the critics. You don't have to answer to anybody but you. You do. Yeah, boo. You do you, boo. Right? That's how the, thing, how the thing goes. Only you are the boss of you. But then Christmas comes along and makes this claim that Jesus is your king. And he's not your king to entertain you, but to rule over you and command your allegiance with rightful authority. Now, he's a good king. He's a perfect king. But nonetheless, he's a king. And that creates a problem for each of us. And I think that's why it's in here. Because the Bible has no category for a Jesus who is your savior, but not your king that you live in full allegiance and surrender to. Our Advent season, we're calling it the thrill of hope. 
The reason the weary world can rejoice is not just that a Savior has come, but our King has come. And in the account of the wise men, we see three responses to this claim that Jesus is the King. And I think they represent kind of the three options that we have when we, think of, when we hear this announcement that Jesus is King. And the challenges for you is not going to be just uh, which one do you agree with, which one do you nod your head to, but which one do you functionally live by? And here are the three responses we're going to see. One is that he's nobody from nowhere, or he's my enemy, or he's my king. Those are the three we're going to see. He's nobody, he's my enemy, he's my king. I'm going to walk us through the first, we're going to hit probably 11, maybe 12 verses of chapter 2. We'll go through those and kind of just study it a little bit. I'll pull out some observations for us, and then we'll see those three responses, okay? You guys ready? There we go. There we go. All right. Verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star at its rising and have come to worship him. All right, a couple of things about the wise men you may not know. First, a lot of y'all are used to the idea of there being three wise men. You're like, they wrote a song, We Three Kings, right? You sing it in really deep voices on Christmas karaoke night, all right, whatever you do. Um, well, there's like no count of three, okay? Now, don't go home and trash your nativity set or anything. They're probably about like 12 to 15, most historians would say, just based on how they travel, got a whole staff, probably a caravan of 60 or more that they're rolling as they come in here. Secondly, who are they? They're wise men from the east, most likely from Babylon. These are trained, they're often called magi or sorcerers, astronomers, kind of like those things blended together, uh, trained in astronomy and prominent in their country for their ability to interpret meaning from the stars. So were they important? Yes. Were they kings? No. All right. A better version of the song would be, we several prominent figures. All right. That would be how that song could go. Um, but there is a really cool connection in here to the whole Bible. I love this. There's a book in the Old Testament called Daniel. It's about a guy named Daniel. Okay. Daniel was Jewish, but he got carried off into exile in Babylon, all right? And he ends up being in Babylon for a long time. God gives Daniel special wisdom and ability. He rises to a place of great power, and he stayed there through the reign of at least three kings, really through most of the Babylonian captivity, all right? Well, here's the thing. He was responsible and had authority over all the magi, and guess what he did? He taught them God's promises to his people. Promises like Numbers 24, 17, that a star will come out of Jacob and a scepter will rise out of Israel. And then hundreds of years later, these guys know this promise that has been passed down from 70 years where Daniel was in charge, right? And they know two things. The future king will be marked by a star and he would be the rightful king over Israel, and I'll show you that as one tiny example of the reality that the whole Bible is telling you one big story about the coming of Christ the King that we celebrate at Christmas. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Of course he was deeply disturbed. When you come to a palace and ask where the king is, it's going to alarm the one sitting on the throne. Right? Herod's Herod the Great, uh, but is not like a good great, okay? It's a bad great. He's a tyrant who is put in charge by the Romans. Think about this. He's put an outsider put in charge by the Romans to preside over the Jews in this area. It's not his throne. 
And this is going to be important as we unpack Herod and how we relate to him later. Listen, (laughs) because he's trying to hang on to power and sit on a throne that's not rightfully his, he always feels threatened. He always feels anxious. He always feels nervous. He's always worried about losing control. And this fear, this threatening reaches threat level midnight when these guys start asking around town about where the real king is, okay? Some of y'all are like, what? That's a little nugget for the office fans, okay? Um, Verse 4. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Y'all, Herod is a tyrant, but he's not a dumb tyrant. He's not Jewish. He doesn't know the prophecies, so he brings in, right, brings these Jewish leaders in, and they're like, okay, where is this anointed one supposed to be born? They pull from the Old Testament prophet Micah to show exactly where he's supposed to come from, because again... The whole Bible is telling one story. This is one of hundreds of prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. And do you know Jesus fulfilled every single one of them? Y'all, I just want to pause there for those of you that are a little bit skeptical about the Christian message, but maybe you're just, you love math, okay? I know it's a small group of people, but I'm with you, son of an accountant. I get you, okay? Listen, the idea that Jesus could fulfill 300 prophecies is so, even if you just took, let's just do this. You take the 17 most obvious ones, like this one from Micah, okay? The chances that one person could fulfill the 17, those just 17 prophecies is one in 480 with 31 zeros after it, okay? I'm just going to display a number on the thing for you to try and get your mind around. That's just one in 17, and he fulfilled over 300. And again, I'm just trying to point you to the fact that it's not intellectually ridiculous to think of Jesus as your king. Let's keep going. Verse 7. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, hey, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. Herod is scheming. And he's not very subtle. All right, like I was with uh, our student ministry Thursday night and I gave him a little like preview of this. And I said, do you think Herod wanted to go and worship Jesus? No, right? That's so like, of course not. What's he want to do? He wants to go kill him. He's implementing Godfather wisdom right here, right? Keep your friends close, enemies closer kind of thing. It's, he's going to visit him, but it's to kill him. And in fact, we'll see that a little bit later in chapter two, verse nine. Well, after hearing the king, they went on their way and there it was the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was when they saw the star. They were overwhelmed with joy. That's what I love about this, y'all. These guys were astronomers. So what does God do? He uses the stars to point them to Jesus. God meets them where they are, using the heavenly bodies to direct the astronomers who are seeking him. This is how gracious God is. He uses the things you know, the people you know, the situations you're already in. He's put you there to draw you to himself. He's working in your life and through your life to tell you about himself. You just got to look up. Had a college student a couple of years ago tell me um, she was talking with a friend who wasn't a Christian, but was kind of working through some things there on campus. And one day, this is right in the beginning of January. She says, you know, 
I think I want to know God, but I just, I don't know how, kind of a moment. And so the college students say, well, why don't you just call me to church and, and we'll see what happens. And that week, they show up to church. It's like the next day, they show up to church, and we're beginning a series called Knowing God. That was the name of the series that week. It's like, well, maybe the Lord might have something for you here, right? By the way, we are continuing that series in January. It's walking through the Psalms. It's going to be great. I'm just pausing to say God is not far away. He's not difficult to find. Quite the opposite. He is near, and he's already working. In fact, the more you get to know God, the more you realize all these things in your life It's not so much you on a quest to find him, but him knowing you and bringing you to himself. That's why we keep talking about these invites to Christmas Eve. The person you know or that group of friends who are far away from God but close to you, it might just be one invite away, and it might be that he has placed you in their life, right? That's not by accident. So bring them to himself. Anyways, verse 11. Entering the house. Man, this is the verse. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, They worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I want to make a couple of observations here, and then I'm going to give you the three responses. But just a couple of observations I see in this particular verse right here that it's been building towards. The first is that, y'all, his kingdom is not of this world. This scene is descriptive of of the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. The young child receiving worship Right? The young child from a poor family receives the worship of the rich and powerful. God's telling us something about our king right here. He's going to upend all the power structures of the world. Think about how God works. Those of you that know the Old Testament, know your Bible stories, actually just know your Bible. Think about how God changes and reverses the roles of men and women that were common in their society. At a time when women were only valued for beauty and fertility, what does God, God chooses older Sarah, not younger Hagar. He chooses Leah, not Rachel. He chooses the barren to bring forth life. He chooses Rebecca, who can't have children. Hannah, who can't have children. Samson's mother, who can't have children. John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, who can't have children. Why? Over and over again, what God is saying, I'm going to choose Nazareth, not Jerusalem. I'm going to choose the girl nobody wants, the boy everybody's forgotten. Why? Why? Is it just that God likes underdogs? No, he's telling us something about salvation itself. Because every other religion and moral philosophy tells you to summon up all your strength and come on, live as you ought. This is especially true in the secular ideology of our day. Be better, man. Just be better. Like that's the announcement to us. That's why they appeal to the strong, to the people who can pull it all together. Only Jesus says, I've come for the weak. I've come for those who admit they are weak. And I'm going to save them, but not by what they do, but what I do. What I do. So if you feel unwanted, if you feel like the outsider here at church, like really, like right even here, feel alone or on the fringes, you feel shame or guilt like you're damaged goods, feel like nobody sees you, hear the anthem of scripture. Hear the anthem of Christmas. He sees you. He knows you. He wants you and he loves you. And that which you might consider a weakness, man, he's going to use to allow you to boast all the more in his strength. At the climax of his life, he ascended not to a throne, but to a cross. His poverty really was our strength. His kingdom's not of this world, y'all. And if you try to make sense of it through the power structures of this world, you'll never understand it. You can't go clean yourself up to get right with God. You can't impress God. You come to him broken, come to him alone, just as you are, and receive the love of Christ. 
Our God's not looking for your resume. He's looking for repentance. That's all. Come to him. Here's the second thing that I see right here in this this moment, this kind of freeze frame moment with these wise men bowing. He is worthy of our greatest treasure. He's worthy. This gold, frankincense, and myrrh, it's treasure. I want to consider just for a minute why. Why'd they give him this? I think it's big because there's no question God calls us to give of our treasure, specifically of our finances, but really all our treasure. Right? The wise men gave their treasure to Jesus for one simple reason. They believed he was worthy. He was worthy. Do you believe he's worthy of your treasure? It's a little confrontational, right? Here's why he's worthy. He is both sovereign and he's good. The wise men recognize he's sovereign. He's the one who rules over heaven and earth. He owns it all. So we give him our treasure in honor just of who he is. His sovereignty makes him worthy, but he's also good. Remember um, in Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is going around. He's trying to take up a collection and provide for the needs of a church that's in really desperate need. And he points him and says, but listen, don't give out of compulsion. Give in response to what God has done for you. Give in response to the goodness of God. Because guilt and fear is not what God wants. That's not the motivator God wants. He wants us to respond to his goodness. Give as you decide in your heart because he loves a cheerful giver. The gospel is the message that God gave. God gave. And he gave us a way to be reconciled to himself. And Paul says, give in response to the gospel. So what happens, it's so beautiful. We fix our eyes on Jesus, on what he's done for us. He does this wonderful work of, you can only grip one thing, right? And instead of gripping our treasure, we grip him and make him our treasure. And it loosens our grip on the things of this world. As Christ becomes our treasure, he satisfies our soul's need for peace, for contentment, and for security in a way the earthly treasure never could. You know this, right? Think if I have a little more money, then I'll have a little more peace and security. But the American philosopher Christopher Wallace taught us that more money means more problems, right? Not more peace, not more peace. Even changes the answer to the question, how much should I give? It actually fundamentally alters the whole question. That question is the wrong one. In light of the great act of generosity of God towards us, in light of the surpassing worth of Christ, the question is, what can I give? What's he worthy of? This is why, I don't know if this is a mistake or not, but this is why I put, like, been kind of uh, adamant we're not going to put a goal on what we're giving for Advent giving. Because we definitely have needs, and it's right and good to respond to needs. I mean, that's what Paul was doing in the Corinthian church. Here's a need. We need to meet this need. And certainly we have needs in our ministry. Providence Road needs a, a, our facility, needs a, a facelift. And um, we've got, we need some more work done for our Union County campus that, Lord willing, we get to start next year. Uh, we need to expand our family ministries around here. we got kids just running around everywhere at both of our campuses, okay? And we need to be able to expand that and care and disciple, help our parents to disciple. we got a third of everything we're given this month going to international missions because of the need there. But while it's awesome to give, give to needs, I think there's a moment that we need to have as a church where there's a heart posture like the wise men that just kneel before Jesus and say, here's my best. That's why I'm giving, because you're worthy. And that's an access point into the joy of Christ. And that's the message we're trying to put forward is that he's worthy. He's worthy of our best because he's sovereign and good. Verse 12, being warned in a dream, not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. It's so powerful, this story, because of the contrasting reactions to Jesus from Herod and from the wise men. So let me give you these three responses that I mentioned at the beginning. 
the first, the first response that, that's in here is that he's nobody. You look back at verse 3 and you see Herod was troubled by the announcement, so is all Jerusalem. Everybody's troubled by the question, yet no one knows the answer. So Herod has to bring the priests in, right? But nobody else in Bethlehem goes to see Jesus. And I don't want to stretch this too far because the point of the text is to contrast Herod and the wise men, but the nobody going was a big reaction in their day and was and it remains in ours. The Jews were waiting on a Messiah who would come to deliver them politically and militarily from their oppressors. The idea of worshiping a baby born to a poor family in a stable in Bethlehem, what good can come out of Bethlehem? It just didn't fit their understanding of a king. People rejected his claim to be king throughout his life. They mocked him all the way to his death. They put a sign of mockery above him that said king of the Jews as he hung on the cross. And all I'm saying at this point is that before you write him off, remember that this nobody from nowhere has been worshipped as the risen savior king for 2,000 years by billions of people. He's not nobody from nowhere. The whole council of scripture testifies that he's the one true king. And I get that you may not understand how is he relevant to your life at this point. Like, how does he help your dysfunctional family, your medical problems, your bills piling up? We'll get there. But his word, his spirit, and his church is testifying loudly to you. He is somebody. So then what responses do we have left? Well, the second one's Herod's response. He's my enemy. Herod understood that he did not have the right to the throne. Definitely not the kingly line. He wasn't a part of the kingly line. He was not a practicing Jew. And anytime someone has usurped authority, the most terrifying thing is for the one who has rightful authority to come back. That's what Herod's experiencing, and he represents us. I think one of our greatest problems is that we sit on the throne and try and control our own lives. That's where so much of our anxiety, so much of our pain and frustration comes from. We try to run our lives and then we bump up against the reality. We can't control everything. We can't. We fail at it. And even if we succeed, like I said, we worry because we're trying to sit on a throne that doesn't belong to us. And we get mad at the thought that it isn't ours. Romans 8, 7 and 8 says every human heart is hostile towards God because we want to be king. That's what sin does to us. We are created as worshipers. You know this. You feel it, right? You always feel that need to have something, some kind of purpose, something else outside of yourself. You're created to respond to something else. And Jesus is saying, it's him. But inside every human heart is this little King Herod that wants to rule and is hostile towards anything threatening that. Where is the true king? This is Tim Keller said this in his book, Hidden Christmas. Where is the true king? That is the most disturbing question possible to the human heart. We put up all kinds of defenses against it to keep ourselves on the throne. Some of us do. We actually use religion. We bring religion into our lives and try and placate God. We, we want to let him into the palace, maybe into the court, but then we stay on the throne. We live moral lives hoping that'll appease God, maybe even put God in our debt. Right? We'll live good lives, and then we'll treat God like the butler and ask him for things every now and then. He gets a corner of our kingdom, but we remain in charge. But then others run from him entirely with no concern for God. Both are attempts at keeping God off the throne. And if he's not your king, who is he? And by the way, who is your king? Is it you? If you are your king, let me just ask you, how's that going? 
especially the past couple years. How's that going? It's exhausting, isn't it? Almost like it's too much for one person to do. Almost like you would need to be on 24-7 and have infinite power and wisdom in order to really be a good king of your life. Yeah, that sounds about right. Even we Christians struggle with this. We say Jesus is on the throne and then it's still hard to pray. Why? Because even after our surrender, there's still this residual hostility to God. A tugging like a magnet back towards the throne. And so we've got to surrender each and every day to Jesus as our king. Which brings me to the third response. He's my king. Y'all, the wise men, they weren't the most biblically knowledgeable. That was the religious elite. They weren't the wealthiest or most powerful. That was Herod. They knew simply this. There was a divine king worthy of worship, and they were honest in their quest to find him. If that's you today, man, like the wise men, I want you to recognize the gift that Christ is to you. They didn't worship him as the boy who would one day become king. What does it say? Where is he who has been born king? How'd they find Jesus? God used a star. God used angels to bring the shepherds to him. But you got so much more than they did. You got his word. Matthew laments. If you go on and you read Matthew's gospel, he's lamenting time and time again how the Jews just missed the Messiah. When others like the wise men who had far less, they saw him. Don't miss Christ today. His Holy Spirit is working and maybe today he's knocking drawing you to faith. Don't resist him. Instead, join the wise men and kneel down and experience, what does he say? The joy of knowing Christ. They were filled with great joy and fall down and worship him. This is how you know your search is genuine. Y'all, I know because some people search for God like, um, kind of like a thief searches for a cop. They're looking for him so they will know when to run and hide and where to go hide because they don't want to give up something they know doesn't belong to them. Recognize that an honest search for God means that when you find him, you must give him everything. And it's going to be for your good when you do. That's why these wise men of prominence are bowing to a young boy. They found God, and he's here for you. Worship him today. Let me close offering you a comfort and a challenge. The comfort is I just want to tell you who this king is. I want to draw a Christian's heart back to who this king is. And if you don't know him, I want to tell you about him. Because he's my king. Let me tell you about him. My king is the wonderful counselor. He does not make wisdom hard to find. He offers it to you in his word. He confirms it in his church. He illuminates it through his spirit. And his word, Psalm 19 says, revives the soul. It is sweeter than honey. It is more precious than gold. He knows anxiety. He knows fear. He knows pride, doubt, lust, greed. He doesn't just know them. He knows the way to victory over them. But he's not just going to tell you how you get victory. No, he's going to get victory over them and then offer it to you in him and just say, abide in me. He's the wonderful counselor. Y'all, my king is the mighty God. He speaks and the storms cease. He speaks and demons flee. He speaks in the blind sea. He speaks in the lame walk. He speaks and the dead rise up off their deathbed and the dead come out of the grave. Why? Because he's been speaking since creation. He speaks and there's light. He speaks and there's land. He speaks and there's life. He speaks and sinners are forgiven. 
this is my king, the mighty God who heals, who rescues. Nobody has sinned so great to go beyond the power of my king. Whatever your background is, whatever your past mistakes are, your deep, dark secrets, I don't care if you've been on the paid staff of hell itself. Why? Because he says the gates of hell will not be able to stand against him when he raids hell to rescue and redeem you. That's my king. My king is the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God, and he is the everlasting father. Before the beginning of time, he knew your name, knew your story, loves you, calls you his own. His fatherly love is everlasting towards you. His fatherly security is everlasting. His fatherly patience is everlasting. Like a loving father, he meets you right where you are. Like a loving father, he trains you in what it's going to mean to follow him. Like a loving father, he invites you into his work, Ephesians 2.10 says. Like a father, he celebrates your progress. He doesn't expect perfection. And if you say, yeah, but I didn't have a good father, I don't understand that. Well, the news is sweeter for you. Because your earthly father was only here to point you to your heavenly father. Your earthly father was finite, but my king is an infinite father. Infinite in time, infinite in power, infinite in love. And he says, regardless of what your earthly father did, he will be with you to the very end of the age. That's my king. My king, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father. My king is the prince of peace. He brings peace between Greek and Jew. He brings peace between the rich and the poor. He brings justice to the oppressed. He brings peace between enemies. How? He brings them home to himself, calls us to look at his great love for us, and then to love thy neighbor as thyself. Love as you have been loved. He brings peace to the warring soul, Philippians 4, 7, as one who has wrestled with anxiety for most of his adult life. Let me tell you something. He brings peace to the soul. A peace as you present your request to God, not in anxiety, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, present your request to God, and he promises the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind. Where? In Christ Jesus, our Lord, our King. My King is a wonderful counselor. He is a mighty God. He is an everlasting father. He is the prince of peace. Take comfort in your king, Christian. And if you've been running from him, if you've never surrendered to him, today is the day you can receive him. Yes, he calls for your absolute surrender, but he is a good king. The one that you were created to give your allegiance to, the one that you will finally find rest for your soul in. So what's my challenge to you? Give him everything. Give him everything. Give him your whole life. Trust him with, don't hold anything back. Let's see what he does. Let me pray for you. Actually, let me give you a chance to respond. You bow your head in a posture of prayer. I want you to respond to this claim that he's your king. Christian, I want you to just thank him. This is a moment of prayer for you, which is a chance for you. Man, my, my king says that he comes and he lives in me and with me. He's with you now. Respond to him. He's your king. Respond to him, Christian. Thank him. Maybe there's been something you've started to kind of 
creep back on the throne about and you haven't surrendered it to him, surrender it to him now, whether it's a big thing like a relationship or, or something, something like that, or maybe it's just a small thing that nobody else really knows about. Man, give it to him. Trust him as your king again. Let him back on the throne. If you're not a Christian, you can have his forgiveness right now. You can have him. You don't have to keep being your own king. doesn't work out. But you can have him today. I told you, he gave. The way that you receive Christ's forgiveness is simply, it's not cleaning yourself up. It's just responding and kneeling. He calls you to repentance, which means you got to believe that, yes, you are a sinner, just like the rest of us. And you need salvation from your sin. That's why he went to the cross, to pay your sin debt. So you say to him, God, I believe I'm a sinner. And I believe Jesus died so that I don't have to. He paid my debt. So I receive that forgiveness today. I'm walking out of here forgiven with a savior and a king. I believe and I receive your forgiveness today. Jesus, you are my king. Just like I did last week, I'm going to do it again today with everybody bowing and, and praying out of respect for one another, but ultimately so that you can respond to the Lord. I want to ask you if that's you and you responded while everybody else is praying and their heads are bowed, I just want to ask you to look up at me if that's you that's responding to give your life to the Lord so that I can pray for you as we pray right now. I want to thank the Lord with you. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace. I, I, just, I love worshiping this God who's not bound by time and place. I love worshiping this God who is yet despite being so infinite, is so close. And we thank you for it. Thank you, Father. Pray for these that are responding for the first time in repentance and faith. God, I ask that you would not only protect them, but draw them ever closer to you. They sense your presence. Give them the courage to tell a friend or someone else. Thank you for your grace. To my brothers and sisters who are already in Christ, God, I pray that our hearts remain stirred over this Christmas season in love and worship that our King has come. Thank you for being such a good King. We are not worthy. We are grateful. And we praise you, our King, in your holy name. Amen.